Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 287, and today we have a special treat for our listeners. I have all three founders of Bevy, Eliza Becton, Sean Grundy, and Frank Lee. Fate, luck, destiny, whatever you call it, it seems very apparent that all three founders of Bevy were meant to build a company together. They all shared a common interest in sustainability, a desire to build a company, and experience in a field that had water at its core. Eliza grew up sailing and was always interested in ocean stewardship, which led her down the path of evaluating different ideas where she could leverage her industrial design knowledge to build a product that could make an impact on the bottled water crisis. Sean spent three years working in an environmental nonprofit and worked on wetland conservation projects in China and later attended MIT Sloan and was president of the MIT Water Club. Frank comes from entrepreneurial roots and worked for an irrigation startup before meeting Sean in China only to learn that they would be attending MIT Sloan together that fall and ultimately room together. So when investors ask that question that they commonly ask themselves before making an investment, why are these founders uniquely qualified to build this company? I don't know if you could find a better founding team. Bevy is disrupting the beverage industry with its bottleless water dispenser for offices and commercial spaces. The company has over 5,000 customers and has raised multiple rounds of funding, including a $70 million Series D last year, which was led by Cohen Sustainable Investments. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the story of how a Bevy machine ended up in HBO's Silicon Valley, the background story of each founder, and more info on how the three came together to start a company, a brief history of the bottled water industry, and the staggering number of plastic water bottles that are sold each year, which is absolutely massive, early foundational years of building Bevy, and early iterations of the machine while figuring out product market fit, scale of the business, and the launch of the countertop version, plus some insight into the possibility of a consumer version, navigating the pandemic, and how some critical decisions ended up benefiting the business over the long term, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is highly likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that we can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include video, podcasting, employee profiles, and more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz.com to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Eliza, Sean, and Frank. Eliza, Sean, and Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Keith. I'm excited to talk to the three of you. I think this is the first podcast I've done with all three founders. I've had other podcasts where I've talked to like two founders, but this is the first time I'm speaking to three co-founders of a company that I have admired for a really, really, really long time. So I was visiting Techstars a long time ago and in kind of like the kitchen area, they had this machine that was serving great tasting carbonated water. And I come to find out it's this company called Bevy. So we're going to talk a lot about Bevy and from that moment to today, how you guys have grown and obviously raised a tremendous amount of capital to expand and, uh, you know, hopefully just, you know, change the market in terms of uh, what companies and I'm interested in learning what, uh, you know, maybe there's some future plans of consumer are doing as far as, um, you know, staying hydrated. 
Now, one of the things I think is super fun about your company is uh, I think it would be great for all companies to get a product placement in a major TV show, movie, and you guys actually had that benefit. So who was responsible for the product placement of your Bevy machine in the great show Silicon Valley that I'm a huge fan of? It's, it's literally about like being the right place at the right time. So the story was we expanded outside to San Francisco around 2016. And around, I think, so something about it was like 2017, 2018. Um, and they were doing, I believe this is their season two. They're doing research on the Bay Area. Um, and the the set director, the person that designs the, the set, and she was just walking around Silicon Valley offices, San Francisco and the South Bay. And just so happened, she saw a bunch of bevy machines um, and she reached out to us. And it was one of those like, um, there's nothing guaranteed. It, it was like, um, we volunteered for it and we agreed to do it. So it, it was really fun after the, sh the, sh the show was shot. So um, it was like, I think like maybe like seven to 10 episodes. Um, and we didn't know if the bevy machine would 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 actually show up in, in the back scene. So an entire company every weekend, I think it was at least every week, like we would we would be very pumped up about the new episodes coming out, and all of us was just like like scouting in the background, say, oh, is Bevy's there? Is Bevy there? I don't think we actually made an appearance until maybe like a third or fourth episode, um, and 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 it, it was just awesome. Like everyone was super excited. Um, I think we had like maybe three scenes, three three separate episodes throughout that season, um, and I believe Bevy was in one of the last episodes. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it was super cool. Like, uh, had we not had expanded um, in San Francisco in 2016 and caught the season 2017 2018 tenure, um, it, it, it wouldn't ever happen. So we we were we were super grateful for it. That's such a great story because, yeah, it's HBO, so they release every week. It's yeah. not Netflix where they release the whole season. So yeah. you had to wait each week like, oh, maybe this week will be there. And then you're like, wait, there's exactly. the baby. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it was super fun for the whole company. Definitely like a like a team building kind of thing. That was in the days when, when like, I, I would still get an email every time a lead submitted a form on our website. And... I assumed HBO was the lead. Like, like I assumed HBO was interested in Bevy for their own office, but instead it turned out that it was for a show, which was like more exciting than, than we could imagine. It, it was also cool because I feel like the story of Pied Piper in some ways coincided with elements of Bevy's story. Like they were in that accelerator in Ehrlich Bachman's house when we were in Techstars Boston in 2014. And then they raised their first round of capital at about the time we raised our first round of capital. So, so we, we could definitely relate. That is hysterical. I love that story. Yeah. Did that influence any sales? Like was that like the product placement help out with, with the sales activity at all? I, a handful. I mean, people still talk about it, um, right. about having seen us there. So, so I think it, it influenced the handful. Mm -hmm. Very cool. That's just a fun story. Something that you don't really get a chance to talk to too many people in the tech industry about product placement. So, um, <laughs> well, let, let's rewind the clock. So let's talk about each of your background stories. Uh, so Eliza, why don't we start with you as far as, you know, where did you grow up, you know, going to school, getting your career started? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in the Boston area, um, was always interested in like 
you know, science and math and art actually. Um, and, you know, at the time kind of needed to commit to <laughs> one of those. So I ended up going to um, Yale University for uh, mechanical engineering. And when I graduated, I was really interested in um, product design and I didn't really know about it until I graduated. And so I discovered industrial design and there's this whole world out there that's this amazing combination of art and science and math. And um, so ended up going back to grad school for um, for industrial design, got a master's at RISD, um, and in parallel, I would say my, you know, I was, I was always really interested in sustainability. I grew up sailing uh, up in Maine every summer and um, always really interested in ocean stewardship. And so, you know, looking at spending a semester trying to tackle a thesis project that I felt really strongly about, I knew I wanted to do something in sustainability. Um went down some different research paths to understand, you know, where, where did I feel like I could do something and pursued, I, I discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is this like floating mass of plastic in the ocean and was just kind of horrified, but also inspired by this and wanted to, um, wanted to tackle something that would make an impact on it. And it, it then morphed into a project on bottled water and really understanding user behavior and why does bottled water exist and uh, came out of grad school with this concept um, around a kiosk and uh, definitely, you know, was was the sort of inkling of Bevy, but not, you know, Bevy as it is today. Um, and concurrently, things were happening in the news that were signaling to me that it was the right time to do the project. So um, my hometown of Concord, Massachusetts banned single-use bottled water. And I was like, okay, this is the universe kind of kicking me and telling me to pursue the project. Um, so I knew that I needed a good business partner um, I love the product side. I love the user research, designing the product. I wanted, I knew I needed a business partner to, to work with me. So um, got introduced to Sean through mutual friends. And Sean was um, the president of the water club at MIT. <laughs> wow. And, okay. Wait, you know what? You know what? Like, let's pause because I want to hear Sean's yeah. story of how, like you yeah. kind of brought us to that sure. cliffhanger. And now we'll okay. talk to Sean and then we'll talk to Frank. So same questions to you, Sean. Um, yeah. So where do I start? If where'd you grow up? Were you like as a kid? Oh, go, yeah. Where'd you go to school? Got got it. I can do that. Um, so so I'm I was born in New York. I'm I grew up, I'm really from New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. Um I um I went to Princeton for college. I was kind of like a, it, it for, for a little while after college, I went through like a hippie environmentalist phase and I spent three years working in an environmental nonprofit. Um, I spent the first two of those years in the DC area. And then, then the last year in China where I actually weirdly met Frank, um, then, then went to, um, 
went to business school at MIT and yeah, started getting interested in, I'd say environmental businesses in general. Like, like basically I was looking for an opportunity to combine essentially a, a lucrative career with a positive environmental impact because having done the nonprofit thing for a few years, um, I, I really enjoyed the nature of the work, but, but just candidly just like didn't want to be poor forever. Um, so, so I was trying to find some way to, to, to not have to, um, not have to make a choice between sustainability and, and career. And, um, I went to business school really with the intention of finding opportunities like that. And I, I'd say I was exploring everything from like renewable energy to, um, reuse and composting types of ideas to uh, water efficiency and types of ideas as well. And then I, I was in this very exploratory mode where I would come up with ideas, spend a couple weeks or months doing some research on them part-time, obviously, because I, I was also like taking classes. Um, and, and then most of the time, just, just uh, giving up the ideas because for whatever reason, uh, either they didn't seem right or I didn't think I was the right person to work on them. And then I, I met Eliza and got excited about, I'd say both what Eliza was doing, but also just like work, like working with her. Like I was excited about the opportunity to, to, to work with um, someone who had that like great industrial design skill set, and as well as just like a lot of other skills. Um, and yeah, the, the rest was history. So you were president of the water club at MIT Sloan. So what, what is that? <laughs> yeah. It, it, so basically, basically our, my first year of Sloan, we had the, we had these things called study tours um, where you could get school funding to, you get some like element of school sponsorship to organize both a course and a trip. And it counted for uh, half a like half a credit, like a half semester course, and it was like a series of weekly lectures on a topic, followed by a trip that was basically a combination. It was like half vacation, but half actual like meeting with companies or government officials or uh, other people who could provide information on a particular um, on, on on a particular set of topics, and. I organized this water study tour with a with a friend of mine from business school, where we brought in lecturers who were basically like professors at MIT and Harvard coming in to discuss their research in sustainability, uh, water efficiency, um, threats threats to our to our ecosystem that that come from um, either poor water quality or or water overuse, and. Um, and and we combine that with a trip to the Middle East to look at basically adaptations, um, adaptations like technological adaptations to environments that were low on water. Um, so it, it was a really it was actually like a really fun course and really interesting trip. And because of that, there was this there was this uh, small MIT water club that was created the next year. And basically, because I had done the study tour, people really wanted me 
to join that club. And I was kind of burned out from honestly, the combination of doing the study tour and all my classes. And the second year, I was also TAing a bunch of courses because I was getting interested in entrepreneurship and realized I needed like every dollar I could get. So so I was, I was being a TA to like uh, make a little money. And um, I, I was very reluctant to, to be involved, but I agreed to do it. And then basically all the founders of the club left and they were like, you're president now. So I just got kind of stuck. <laughs> that is so cool. All right, Frank, what's your what's your story? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school sure. and getting your career uh, started? Yeah. Uh, so I, I was actually born in Taiwan and my, my, my family immigrated to the States when I was 10. But I basically grew up in Texas, Houston. Uh, I went to UT Austin. I studied chemical engineering um, because my, my parents... Um, just growing up, my, my parents are, are entrepreneurs. They run a small manufacturing company in Taiwan. So I always kind of knew that I want to um, start start a company someday. Um, so after college, I, I worked for Procter Gamble for five years um, in manufacturing. And I actually worked in paper mill. That's my first job at college. And then mm-hmm. I moved over to marketing. Um, and then there was like this year before business school where I can, I wanted to see if I would like the startup world. So um I worked for a U.S.-based company. Um, it's a startup called DripTech. They're uh, they're from Stanford, so their whole thing is about um, uh, creating an affordable irrigation technology to farmers in developing countries. Um, so the second half of my time there, I I actually live in Beijing, um, in China, trying to do business development, and that's what where I met Sean. It, it's kind of a cool story. It can kind of show you how small the world is. Mm-hmm. So the story is like um, Sean. Like, like he mentioned, he was he was in Southwest China, and uh, working for a uh, conservation and uh, organization NGO. And he flew to Beijing, um, wanting to do a drip irrigation um, project with uh, the company I was working at. And we met in a very small room with my Chinese colleague. And I looked at his business cards, like, and I said to myself, like, this his name sounded very familiar. So I I, I looked him up while we were just talking. And I was like, oh man, we're going to the same business school together in three months. And, and that's how we met. That's um, crazy. Remember, yeah, it's crazy how small the world is. And like the first the first night uh, we hung out, we were both super homesick. And we, so we went to get a hamburger. It was like super expensive. It was <laughs> but um, but then we just bonded. Like he and we both trained Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So we have like the common interests. And then that's kind of how we met. And we, we were roommates during business school. And the, the way I, I eventually linked up with Sean and Eliza was... Um, as I said, like I've always been interested in startups. So I was working on some other business idea, uh, something fitness related. It was really wasn't working out. And I was talking to Sean because we were roommates. And um, you know, I, 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 was, I was I was not very motivated because I, I didn't have any one to uh I didn't, I didn't essentially have any partners to work with. So Sean's pitch to me was at that time was, you know, Eliza and I have been working together. It's a terrible business idea, but at least you get to work with me and Sean, uh, me and Liza. So I was like, oh, okay, let's do it. Um, <laughs> and then uh, us three, we actually met for the first time, all, all three of us together at Meat Hall in uh, uh, in K- 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 Kendall Square. Um, and like you know, to, to kind of sort of like unify this, like we all each of us work wanted to work on a product that has an impact, and all three of us sort of this water related. Um, uh, like background. So we sort of rallied around Eliza's idea of, you know, using design and user experience to, to change user behavior. 
Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of how Bevy became who we are today. Very cool. All right, we're going to dig into more of the history of Bevy in a second, but I did want to talk about, I was doing more research for this podcast and I learned a lot about bottled water. All right, so I I was shocked if people would know this stat, but the the first commercialized bottled water company actually was started in Boston, 1767, called Jackson Spa. Random, but I thought that was interesting. Now, I was born in uh, 1972, and bottled water was not a thing. You drink from the tap, uh, and then all of a sudden, the world changed, right? Because I guess people were just fearful of tap water and contamination. So then all of a sudden in the nineties is when it really started to take off. And then in the two thousands, it became kind of like, you never drink tap water. You got to, and all the major players, the Nestle's, the Pepsi's Coca-Cola, it's all these brands that we drink. They're all owned by these major conglomerates, right? So this whole industry ended up exploding and going back to Eliza's point, you have this great Pacific garbage patch and there's all this plastic in oceans. There's 8 million tons each year, 50 billion plastic, 50, 50 billion plastic water bottles are sold each year. And each bottle takes 400 years to biodegrade. Now, these were research stats that I got from a website. You know, it just gives some kind of um, context for why Bevy is so important and meaningful for the sustainability factor. But Eliza, like the, the great Pacific garbage patch, you already mentioned that. What What is that? It sounds scary. Um, It's, yeah, <laughs> it's a floating mass of like tiny bits of plastic in the middle of the ocean that is, I believe it's like twice the area of Texas. Um, I could be wrong on that. Um, and what's kind of even more horrifying is when you think about how those plastics are getting into your food system and ultimately we're ingesting them. <laughs> it's just, it's on all levels from everything from, you know, keeping fresh water in your hydrological system to um, offering, you know, filtered water to people um, to, you know, reducing plastics to not ingesting plastic. Like there's just so many aspects to it that are, you know, we could have a better way to do it. And I think today people are more primed than ever to understand um, and be committed to, you know, reusables and carrying around a, you know, I think back in part of, part of the history of bottled water is it was just so convenient. Even if you do think that, you know, the water is, is great quality, um, it's just convenient Which is not to always. grab a bottle. It's not always great quality right. bottle. No, water, that's right? true. Yeah. Um, but a lot of what I found in my research was like people just wanted a grab and go solution too. Um, and being able to offer something to people at the point of use um, that they can customize. And then, you know, they're carrying these around today. Um, just had to be a better way. Felt like a really clear cut, like thing we could improve upon. <laughs> yeah. And, and like the trend has changed. I have two daughters that are teenagers and they carry their hydro flask and they're staying more hydrated than I ever did as a teenager. So it's just, you know, it's almost like a fashion 
part of what they do and carry. And you know, it's it's just great to see that it's embedded into how they think. Um, so, all right. So how did you, so, you know, you talked about the dream team and the rest is history. And I have to agree with that statement because the, the one of the questions VCs often ask is how is this team uniquely qualified to solve this problem right now? And I think of the three founders of Pevy and I'm just like, man, this is like destiny where you all had experience in a similar world, that being water and sustainability and you've got someone that's focused on design, someone that's, um, you know, you know, the, you know, Sean and Frank were abroad working on water projects and meet right before you go to business school. So it was almost like this was destiny waiting to happen. So once you guys started kind of thinking through some ideas, how did you actually come up with the idea for Bevy and how did that actually get started? Cause you got to build a physical product, which is super hard to do. So we started, we started with this concept that that Eliza had done in her thesis at RISD, which was not too different from what we do today. It's m- machines that purify tap water. And then in the beginning, we wanted to essentially combine a vending machine with a dishwasher. That doesn't sound that attractive, but that's what it was. <laughs> and the okay. idea was to let users get a full bottle, like a full reusable bottle of purified water drink it and then return that bottle because what we were trying to solve for what we were trying to capture the sustainability benefits and the cost saving benefits that come with transporting water via via pipeline um and that come with not needing single-use packaging so we were trying to combine those benefits with um what with the convenience that bottled water offers and we were really worried about that convenience and and the fact that if we couldn't offer some bottled solution, we didn't think we could be competitive. Um, so that was the concept. And then the second part of the concept is people would return their reusable bottles to the machine. And then the bottles would be automatically cleaned, checked to make sure they were correctly sanitized and then reused. So so that So that was the initial idea. And I'd say through a series of incredibly low budget market tests, by incredibly low budget, I mean literally like us physically handing out reusable bottles and telling people we were going to wash them ourselves and then resell them and like and like lending them and seeing like how much people were willing to pay to like borrow a reusable bottle. We did wash them though. Yeah, we yeah. did wash them. No, 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 just saying it. <laughs> but, but, um, like through these like very, very simple market tests, we were trying to, I'd say like isolate the variables of what, of like what behaviors people would take and of what they were willing to pay for. So, okay. Would they pay for a drink without a container? Would they pay for a container that they had to return? And then how much? And what what we started learning through this like series of tests was and 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 the series of tests, I should say, like started in this very low budget way, but over time progressed to be actual machine prototypes that did dispense reusable bottles. Um, what we started learning was people didn't really need bottles from us. Um, year over year, more and more people seem to be carrying reusable bottles and bringing them to different types of locations, like bringing them to the office, bringing them to school or bringing them to the gym. And they weren't really looking for us 
to provide that bottle to them in the moment. Um, we found that the vast majority of our customers preferred to just use use a bottle they already had. So, so, so that was one thing. We also learned that even though the the common habit at the time was to um, what was to, was to buy single use bottles for basically anything other than plain water, as well as well as for plain water, um, we found that if we made a variety of beverage options available from the tap, people would want them. Like like we basically found that hey, if you were to put like vitamin water on tap, people would like that. And, um, and, and those very simple tests started informing the design we came up with. Were you thinking consumer initially, like this is going to be a consumer based product? Yeah, we, we were, we we were thinking about commercial locations. I I remember we were thinking about schools and gyms, but we were Mm -hmm. thinking that individual consumers would pay either pay by swiping a credit card or pay by um, some form of subscription. And we actually built machines. Like our first prototypes have credit card readers on them and people had to swipe and would pay like 25 cents or something for um, for water. I remember we even had one machine early on where we hadn't gotten the, the payment system to work yet. So it couldn't actually swipe people's credit cards, but we wanted people to still think they were paying because <laughs> that let us test the behavior. We could like observe them and see if they thought they were being charged. And, and that still let us know like, okay, they think they're paying for this. That That's good. Um, like, like shows there's some demand. Um, so, so initially we were thinking consumer. And I remember, it was funny. I remember presenting the idea to one of our advisors and, and he asked, he's like, hey, are you sure you don't just think schools are the right target market because you spent the last two years in school? Like, like have you looked around at other markets? And Anyway, we we were we, we we were inclined to believe that these kind of locations, like schools and gyms, would be the best fit. And our first really, I'd say, like high effort prototype, like our true kind of maybe like maybe what I'll call like a, a legit minimum viable product, was at Brooklyn Boulders in Somerville, mm-hmm. and multiple people who attended the gym there commented to the front desk that they would love some alternative or some version of our product for their offices. And this is back in 2014. And the first or second time I heard it, I I think we all didn't take it too seriously. Like we were interested in that. We're like, oh, that's great that someone likes it. But we didn't really uh, instantly flag the office market as this big opportunity. But once we had seen a few of those same types of requests, we then asked to get in touch with the people and said like, hey, could you give us their email addresses? Like, we'd love to go visit their offices. And we went out there and saw um, saw these companies with refrigerators stocked full of bottled water, cans of polar seltzer, like all sorts of sodas. And it's funny, I think for me and Eliza coming from nonprofit backgrounds and from for friends, Frank coming from like big Fortune 500 company. I don't think any of us knew that there were companies out there just offering like free refrigerators full of any drink you want to their employees. Like like we didn't even know that was a market. And at first I viewed it as like, oh, this must just be like a really techie, like Silicon Valley kind of perk. But then the more we looked into it, the more we learned that not only 
did the perk exist beyond Silicon Valley, but that more and more companies across industries were, were looking to Silicon Valley for basically thought leadership on how to create a great office culture. And we realized that um, we realized that we had a real market. All right. So once you validate the market, Eliza, how do you build a product and get it manufactured? Because there's hardware, software, quality control, concentrate for flavors. Like there's like, and like, I think it, actually people, if they're not used to, or if they've never used a bevy, it might be helpful just to explain like how, like what you get from it. Yeah. Um, so it dispenses filtered water, uh, sparkling water, and then either still or sparkling plus flavor. So, um, and I remember from some of our first prototypes, people would say, well, I don't understand why it's so big. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd open up the machine and kind of show all the components and they were like, oh, okay, we get it. Um, but you know, I think to your point of how do you get it made and all of us probably, you know, know enough to um, be able to speak with engineers, but like we aren't engineers really. Um, so like, you know, we'll cobble together things that are proof of concept to kind of talk to customers and things like that. But when it comes to building the first units, um, we tried to use as much like off the shelf components as we could to put things together. Um, and that was expensive, but de-risked a lot of the things that, um, you know, not, not just from like a time perspective, like it, we can go test the product out quicker. Um, but we also just knew it would work. <laughs> um, and, and we use contractors. We just, and we would help ourselves. We Frank would be back, you know, programming on Arduino and trying to figure out how to get the thing to dispense properly. And, um, and so, you know, I think a lot of, I, I always find it funny when people talk about like Eureka moments and then all of a sudden the product is made. And in reality for us, at least it was just such an iterative process. It was about putting something out talking to people that are using it very directly, um, observing them, staying as close as we can to the customer, and then iterating on it. Hey, guys, this was the feedback I got. Let's make the new version and do this. Um, and what's nice about kind of using those off-the-shelf components is that you're not really wedded to it. You can make these shifts and incremental you know, steps in the right direction and test different ideas and... Um, yeah. So that's kind of how we did it. And one of the things that I, uh, when I was doing my research, I picked up that you guys focused on selling initially in the Boston market because you wanted to emphasize that quality control that you could physically go out and make sure the machines were operating properly, which I'm sure hindsight's like, wow, that was a really smart decision uh, just in case if there was an issue. But how did you figure out the business model? So how, like, how did you figure out what's the price point how do we get companies to pay for these and what's the subscription model? Or like, how'd you figure out, you know, the business side? Um, a lot of it was honestly trial and error and just, just listening to customers. So we found when we asked people what they were spending on beverages, we found that 
nobody really thought of it on a per bottle level. And like nobody knew, like when we visited different companies and we spoke with their facilities teams or, or in smaller companies, their office manager about how much, like what, what's your beverage budget? First of all, there's no budget line item for it. Like mm-hmm. in nearly all companies, there's no, there's no dedicated line. It just falls under some general like office supply, you know, meals expense item that, that gets, uh, that gets mixed with all sorts of other expenses, but we found that people roughly knew their monthly spend. So maybe they'd say, Hey, we spent a thousand dollars a month for our, you know, for our hundred employees on sparkling and flavored water and on, and on bottled water. So, so, so knowing that they think of it in, in terms of monthly spend, um, we decided to match that and really like pitch our pricing, pitch our pricing monthly as well and come up, in the beginning, we actually primarily did flat monthly pricing, and we ended up we, we ended up um, adapting our pricing model to more to more of like today's situations where people don't have that consistent of a number of employees in the office day to day. But in the beginning, we did flat pricing where we'd say, "Okay, you spend a thousand dollars a month on bottled water, we'll offer you bevy for five hundred dollars a month, flat priced," mm-hmm. and that that was pretty effective um i'd say also it it was really just trial and error where there were there were times we'd quote hey like yeah it's it's going to be four hundred dollars a month all inclusive and a customer would say wow that's so much less than i was expecting and we'll be like oh okay i guess should should have next like (laughs) next time we'll do 500 and then (laughs) but then other times people would say oh that's more than i was expecting and then we'd think like okay good to know so so Mm. a lot of it was honestly just trial and error um, as well as, of course, there's, there's, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer that pricing should be based on willingness to pay rather than, rather than some multiple of cost. But there was, of course, the process of making sure the costs, you know, the revenue also worked for our cost structure. Because today, like the pricing, like there's a, you're leasing the machine, right? And then there's like, you're paying for the flavors, right? The concentrate. That, that's right. So today, today we offer, um, t- today we offer unlimited sparkling and flavored water, as well as all service and maintenance for three hundred to three hundred fifty dollars per month. And I give that range because we have two versions of our machine. There's the smaller countertop, and then we have a floor standing machine, and. And, and they come at slightly different price points, but yeah, that price is inclusive of all service and maintenance. And then on top of that, we sell concentrates for flavored and now enhanced water as well. Like we now offer things like vitamins and supplements um, that can be mixed in with any flavor or with regular still or sparkling water. Um, and, and and we charge extra for those, but but all in, a typical bevy client would pay something like five hundred dollars a month for the whole gamut of of beverage options. And I mean, like from what I've found, was you're obviously appealing to uh, three major points for the sales process: it's sustainability, cost, but also on top of that was time, right? Like the time, like there, there was like a major, like, oh my, how much time it takes our office manager to restock the fridge every single day. And then employees are disgruntled when their, <laughs> their seltzer is not cold. Yes, it is. It is weirdly important 
I shouldn't say weirdly, I, just surprisingly. It's it's something you wouldn't necessarily think of when thinking of value propositions. Like it's pretty obvious you look at cost. I think the sustainability is this the sustainability value is um becoming more and more important to customers today. Um, but yeah, I was surprised when we started selling how much time savings really mattered because an office manager might spend, if it's if it's a big company with multiple floors. They might spend like 30 minutes a day or, or more just stocking um, just stocking refrigerators with bottles and cans. And it, it's time that nobody really wants to spend. Like it's not fun work. And, um, and, and there are definitely higher value uses of office manager's time. So we, we found, yeah, we found that that's actually very important to our, um, very important to our customers. All right. So this is a product that is really, really complex to not only imagine, but you actually have to manufacture it too. So how did you go to market in terms of building out the first you know, products in, in, the, in the manufacturing process? I led us through the first uh, round of manufacturing. So obviously okay. like it's a capital intensive business. Um, we, it, it's just not practical for us to go and build our, build our own factory. Um, so we went about a pretty big process to figure out who our contract manufacturing partner partner should be. Um, so, so it's actually a pretty interesting process in terms of figuring out the right partners as a small startup. Um, so at the time, this this is all three of us first time manufacturing any hardware product, um, and we we sought out a lot of advices on like how do we pick the correct contract manufacturing partner. Um, so, like. As we go through the process, we basically, you know, we 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 narrow down a list of ten contract manufacturers. Uh, we send out an RFP to see like who would be the most cost effective. But one thing I didn't real, realize um, for for startup companies, like for the partners that you pick, especially big uh, important external partners like a manufacturer, a lot of it is just like how much they care, how much they believe in you. Because what we found in the very beginning. Let's say there are five contract manufacturers. These are all like very old school businesses. Um, you know, they've been operating for decades. They've been building hardware for, um, for forever, and they have a very set ways to do things. And and they're they're a lot more uh, risk averse. So what we found quickly was that there's a small set of um, contract uh, contra manufacturer that really truly believe in uh, what we're doing. So we literally had to go in and and pitch them our vision um, and what we're trying to do. And we eventually landed on um, the, this customer manufacturer out of Vermont that we still work with uh, today. And um, what, what I thought was a really cool story was like, when we first, the first week we went there to manufacture our first 10, unit, uh, 10 units, um, the program manager, the customer manufacturer, his wife baked us a cake. And on, on, on the cake, it says, congratulations, Bevy. And I, I just thought it was so cool. Like we're super stressed out because like these machines were not working as we expected off the line. But we had this partner who was there with us until uh, like, I think we, we worked at like one to 2 a.m. Um, the first few days. He was there um, with us, even though like we didn't necessarily have all the expertise, um, just having him there supporting us, uh, I, I thought that was super cool. And and then that that's kind of how we overcome um, starting a business in a capital intensive uh, uh, product and figure, figuring things out along the way with good partners. 
and that's a key lesson learned for you know other companies that are looking to build a physical product. You're going to work with manufacturing companies and make sure that they care as much about the product that they're you know building as well. So that's good lesson learned. So you know, Sean, this is a capital intensive business, and it's not something that most venture capital firms probably have been looking at, where they have comps and know that this is kind of what. Uh, your type of company is going to generate for for revenue, and so so how did you go about raising capital? Because you've raised you know multiple rounds. I think your last was a Series D of seventy million. Yeah, we've raised over one hundred sixty million dollars in venture capital to date, and I'd say our fundraising path, particularly in the beginning, was challenging because we were such a different story from what most VCs were used to hearing. Um, in, in some ways, it, you had asked me earlier about um, coming coming up with our pricing. And one one key benefit to our choice of a of a recurring revenue model rather than say selling our machines, like the fact that we chose to lease our machines, is that it made our business both more more palatable and easier to comprehend for tech investors who were used to SaaS business models, um, because we were able to speak in terms that were very similar to SaaS. And our business demonstrated, I'd say like very similar predictability when when it came to tracking um, ARR, growth rates, churn rates, uh, customer acquisition costs. We were able to pretty easily apply investor standard lenses that they use to evaluate a business to our business. And I'd say like, luckily, and perhaps surprisingly, our metrics turned out to be really strong when when viewed from that kind of venture perspective, just because our product was always very sticky. Like once once we sell a bevy machine or lease a bevy machine into a customer, it's really unlikely that that customer ever returns the machine. And we, we tend to see a lot of expansion because you know, people in one office of a company might visit another office of that company, see a bevy and decide that they need one for themselves too. So, so that, that helped a lot with, with fundraising. Um, and, and one thing I've realized that, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's uh maybe it's obvious, but like investors are people too, and they care about our mission too. So the, the fact that we're trying to take on single-use bottles, the fact that we're going after like the industry that is responsible for more plastic pollution than any other industry, um, you, you know, the, the, the beverage market. Um, it's something that investors often want to be part of as well. That, right, like if investors are choosing between the opportunity to um, invest in another SaaS business or to really make an impact and and show the world a, a economically viable and um, customer accepted alternative to single use bottles. Like that's something that investors also get excited about. All right. So, so Eliza, like uh, Sean, had mentioned that there's two different versions of the product. There's the standing one, then there's the countertop one. So how did you go about recognizing that that was a need and building something that required that cabinet to something much smaller and when can I expect to see this on my countertop in my home? Because I, I would um, like to oh, see that. Like top, yeah, that's a topper request we get. Um, <laughs> um, 
So the beginning of the our countertop version and, and you know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen one in the wild, but there's equipment below it as well underneath the cabinet. Um, so it looks very small and petite, but there's there's some more stuff going on. Um, that came from basically us hearing from our New York market a lot of, you know, I don't have floor space. I can't fit a standing machine there. So we kind of, it was based on this idea of just like, again, listening to our customers and um, hearing that feedback so often, we knew we needed to uh, create a different solution. Um, so, you know, we worked on that from a similar perspective of like, how quickly could we bring this to market? Um, you know, repackaging what we had, using a lot of the same components and uh, allowing customers to have sort of a, a more of a, a flexible installation to fit into those weird New York spaces. Um, and then, you know, today, I think, you know, it's been interesting to see the the role of the countertop in our portfolio has changed over time. Like as people start seeing it in more places, they want to, they're building it into their spaces because you have these really beautiful, highly designed kitchens and they want that nice little petite um, machine to fit in into their beverage spaces. Um, and so it's been interesting to kind of see how uh, the market's changed and how people have been interacting with our product has changed. Um, and then, you know, to your point with the uh, home unit, um, our ideal goal is to be everywhere that people want to be hydrated. That's kind of the big, the big vision. And so if you fast forward that, um, that means, you know, we want to be looking at all these opportunities. We are thinking about them, um, and, and researching them all the time. So, um, I, I can't promise anything, but we do have a list of beta testers. So whenever we get there, I can, I can reach, I can put you on the list. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yes. It's a no brainer. Cause to your point, like I would rather have something that's, I can just easily access versus, you know, the cans of polar seltzer. So the other thing that is really important is, um, you're running your business. I'm sure you're growing, seeing great numbers. And then all of a sudden this global pandemic hits and people are not going into the office. What was that experience like? And, and how did you work through that, you know, to your time period? It was cool. No, it was, it was terrible. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a nightmare. Um, yeah. Yeah. We literally went from true hyper growth, like more than doubling year over year in terms of revenue and our install base, um, hiring like crazy, and and you know you know like like building building out our team and co constantly taking on more and more in the business, we went from that where where really our priorities were just getting the right people on the team and growing as fast as possible to survival mode, where we did not have confidence candidly that our market would come back and had to kind of ha had to make bets on how much do we want to design for a world in which people do eventually return to offices versus how much do we assume that the market's dead and we need to do some kind of hard pivot. 
and we and we were dealing, I'd say, with like very near-term challenges as well. Of like our sales pipeline evaporated. There was an influx of customers shutting down offices, so we knew both machines would be getting returned in some cases, and um, and machine usage, which we had talked earlier about our our uh, our, our business model. Um, with machine usage down, concentrate usage drops, and that's an important revenue source for us. So it was it was an incredibly frightening period um, for a while there. Although I think we navigated it quite well. Like we made a lot of hard decisions, but I think most most of our hard decisions we made we made well. And we took the time to really like, you know, when you're in hyper growth. Uh, you're kind of like, there's so many manual processes. There are so many things you do out of necessity. Um, and you don't necessarily build things that are scalable in terms of like company processes. Um, and so we took the time to like shore up those, those processes to get ready for hyper growth again, and to invest in our, um, our R and D. So our development team was still working on our new, stand-up model that that we came out with. Um, and so we were ready for the market to return and be able to launch it, which we did. Um, so which in itself was kind of a crazy decision <laughs> in, in retrospect. Like basically rather than make a hard pivot to, for example, a consumer product, we decided to keep developing uh Com another commercial machine, which is now our stand-up 2.0, like our second generation machine, um, we decided to stay committed to that track and to spend another year, um, another year working on a product for a market that at the time didn't exist, but that we were hopeful would exist again. And th that was that was not an easy decision because I feel like the easy decision would have been to make a big pivot. And and there was a lot of pressure to do that from from team members, from investors, like there was a lot of debate over whether that was the right call. And ultimately we decided that if the office market never recovered, like like if people just like worked from home forever, our business would just be in huge trouble anyway. Like, like we'd be kind of screwed anyway. But if the office market did recover, then we wanted to make sure we were the ones who were going to win it. So it was more important to us to plan for that scenario and to say, like, if the market does recover, we need to make sure without a doubt that we have the number one product and the, the best product pipeline and that we're poised to continue to be the ones to to win this market. Yeah, that's a big bet. But, you know, you got to make big bets to build a big company. And, you know, hopefully you made the right, you know, when you're making the decision, you're like, fingers crossed, we're making the right decision. But if we look ahead to today, so what's the current what's good you know, now? Right. Well, what's the current you know scale of the business? Whatever you can share as far as you know how many thousands of customers or whatever metrics you guys use. Sure. Yeah, we have over five thousand customers. Um, wow. All 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 B two B. They're still primarily corporate offices. Although during the pandemic, we did learn to sell to a lot of other commercial locations too. So we are in like major um major like luxury apartment buildings we're in major hotel chains we're in airport lounges we're in golf clubs like we're in um, early car dealerships yeah car dealerships where we are in a, a pretty wide variety of commercial locations 
Um, we're well past our pre-COVID revenue peak. We've, we've actually been past our pre-COVID revenue peak for almost a year now. Um, so we're far past that. And to Eliza's point, we still have fewer people today. I mean, what it... What I don't think we mentioned is we did do heavy layoffs in spring 2020, which was brutal. Like we cut our team more than in half in in the spring of 2020. So so that that was terrible. Although as we grew, what was motivating is we've been able to hire back a Mm -hmm. lot of the people as we recovered. We've been able to hire back a lot of the people that we had initially laid off, like some as early as later in the year in 2020 and the most recent one just literally joined like two weeks ago just came came back for the first time in three years um so 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 we're getting the team back um but but um to eliza's point on efficiency we we still only have about 140 people versus a pre-covid um, number of over 150 and we're doing far more revenue and just kind of accomplishing far more as a business. And I think that is because we used the period of the pandemic to work on, on system improvement and on just, just efficiency, which yeah, in high growth mode, all that just gets left behind. That's a great point where if you told me you're doing over 5,000 customers and 140 employees, I'd be like, you're kidding. That is like, you would think you would have 500 employees or something of that magnitude, but uh, you know, you're running a, a business that, you know, you took advantage of that time to re really, really think about how to do things uh, differently in scale. So Frank, what's uh, what's your, you know, each of you, I want to ask, you know, kind of a, what's a, a big lesson learned from building Bevy. So Frank, why don't you start? Big lesson learned. Um, I think for me, the, the dynamic of the co-founding team is, is very important. Um, what's what's kind of funny is like we started Bevy um, almost the same time I got married. Um, so I kind of kind of see the parallel between like a healthy relationship on both ends. I, I still remember like us three, we would get so mad at each other in, in this like co-working space. Um, but we were like, at the end of the day, like we would like, Put our pride aside and try to at least make the best decision for the company. Um, so you always you you always hear like the co-founding dynamic is very important, um, but that's that's just something that I didn't really get to experience until I went to Betty. Um And here we are, 10, 10 years, almost ten years later. Eliza, what's your big takeaway? Um. I, I would say two things. One is uh, learning to listen and, and what to listen to is incredibly important. Um, and that, that's just like a constant thing. You've got to always sort of be, have your ear to the ground, whether it's your own field team and their insights, the customers, you've got to kind of balance all of those things. Um, the CEO, um, all those needs. Um, and then the other portion would just be like, be as customer obsessed as you can be. Um, you know, we're always trying to get better at that and trying to instill that in our company culture. And I think it's, it's really hard and we have a lot of, you know, improvement to make on that front, but it's so important to building a good product. And, um, you know, that's one of my goals in the next year is to try to really, spread that around as much as possible, love for customers and obsession with it and really putting them first above everything else. 
How about you, Sean? I, I agree. With, yeah, I agree with everything that both Frank and Eliza said in terms of the importance of picking the right team, the importance of staying close to customers. And, and I, I think over the last 10 years, I've learned a lot more about how to do that, like how to assemble the right the right team and the right people for each stage, as well as, as well as how, how to stay close to customers and like how to listen. Um, the, the, the other thing I'm learning, this is more as we scale, it's, it's less related, I think, to the early stages, but the big thing I'm trying to work on is like to do less. And, and I think we're learning to do less, it, meaning there's, there's this temptation to try to take on everything. And we could look at our business today and find a thousand things that we should be doing better. And rather than spread ourselves thin among those, how do we pick like the one that we need to do really, really well, or the two things we need to do really, really well, and just do those and and make sure to do them right. And, and that's been, um, that that's been important to learn, especially moving, I'd say, from startup stage to like the scale up stage. We're in the startup stage. To some extent, we want to be throwing spaghetti at the wall and like always trying new things and seeing what works because you never know what will be the big idea that really takes off. But I think once you have a big idea that's taken off, it's really important to to get rid of as much other work as possible so you can just do more of the things that work. Yeah, that's so important. And you mentioned, you know, scale and then stage. So there's different people that are really good at the early stage. And then there's, a you know, people that are good at the next stage of the company. Then there's the people that are really good at that scale up to the next level. So it's super important to be mindful of, you know, the talent that you're bringing in. What are they, what are they good at? And what do they enjoy doing too, of course. So. Yeah. The enjoyment matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, no, it's different different pros and cons of each stage. So it's uh, it's got to be aligned with the employees that you're bringing in. All right, what's uh, one app that each of you can't live without? Eliza, what's your favorite app, go-to app? Super honestly, Slack. Yeah. I just, mm-hmm. just from a practical standpoint, it's, um, it's so important to stay connected to your team and to be kind of in five places at once. And that's like realistically how we do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. It's a boring answer, though. Um, it's a common one, though. Think. It's very common. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, Slack, Gmail, and my calendar. <laughs> Those are the yeah. three most common ones I get from founders. <laughs> so I feel like Frank. Frank will have the best one. Like Frank, you'll what do you have, Frank? Have What's yours? Oh man, uh, I guess Spotify. I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually enjoy my podcast a lot. Uh, Eliza and I are big Joe Rogan fans, so this is the keep client experience. So we really appreciate being here. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just like podcasts, like especially when you're like printing out work, you need some like back background stuff. You can still like learn um, in in, um, in multitask. Um, so yeah, yeah, I agree. Spotify is probably my number one too, and music a ton, but obviously some podcasts too. So yeah. what about you, Sean? This is really boring, but I was going to say Spotify too. It's not, it's not, it's not as, it, yeah, it's honestly not very so exciting. Boring. Yeah. Very this practical. Is, this is also even more basic, but um, I, sweet green, I use the sweet green app a lot. Oh, that's a good okay. one. Yeah. Yep. Um, more recently, I've been doing Wordle a lot. Okay. 
Oh, really? Like even recent, there was that fad, but you're still doing it. Yeah. I just got back into it because Mm -hmm. I felt like it was a good way to end a day. Like you just clear your mind, do your wordle, go to bed. Yeah. You know what? I need, I need to go back to it. Cause I agree. It was like, you just took a few minutes out of your day just to kind of like it decompressed you. It did. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I need to get back to it. So, all right. Well, Eliza, Sean, Frank, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through the whole you know background story of each of you, how you came together to build Bevy, and obviously the great stories of building the company along the way, and of course, all the great advice too. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks, Keith. This was great. We really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.